Hello and a warm welcome to this podcast. In this edition, we'll be concentrating on how listening to and evaluating centuries of tradition and teaching might assist us in understanding present-day questions around human identity, sexuality, marriage and relationships. Tuning into the nuances of birdsong has been a common collective experience during lockdown. With traffic immobile and aircraft grounded, we heard, perhaps for the first time, the unmuted miracle percussion of the woodpecker drumming for a mate. In theological terms, listening was a discipline practiced by early Christian mystics, such as the 4th and 5th century Middle Eastern Desert Fathers and Desert Mothers, and it's been an essential principle for those involved in living in love and faith. When we listen in full consciousness, light can permeate, perception deepen, taking us beyond our perhaps settled, unexamined theological views. My name is Stuart Henderson. I'm a poet, broadcaster and songwriter. Today we ask, how do we hear God through the church? The Right Reverend Jonathan Baker is the present Bishop of Fulham and Guild Vicar of St Andrew Hoban in the City of London. Following study in Oxford at St John's College and St Stephen's House, his first curacy was served at Ascot Heath, going on to further parish ministry at Holy Trinity Reading. For ten years, Jonathan was principal of Pusey House, an Anglican institution of sacred learning rooted in the Anglo-Catholic tradition. The Reverend Canon Dr Andrew Goddard is a tutor in Christian ethics at Ridley Hall, Cambridge, and also at Westminster Theological Centre. Formerly at Trinity College Bristol and Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, and past member of Oxford University's Faculty of Theology, Andrew is presently Assistant Minister at St James the Less in London. The Reverend Prebendary Dr Isabel Hamley currently serves as chaplain to the Archbishop of Canterbury, licensed to the post in 2017. Formerly a probation officer, she previously taught biblical studies and practical theology at St John's College, Nottingham, and for 10 years, Isabel tutored in the School of Continuing Education at Nottingham University. Her theological commentary on specific chapters in the Book of Judges, Unspeakable Things Unspoken, was published in 2019. Julian Rivers is Professor of Jurisprudence, the Theory or Philosophy of Law, at the University of Bristol Law School, a post he has held since 2007. His areas of legal expertise include constitutional law, human rights law and the legal regulation of religions. Julian is also Editor-in-Chief of the Oxford Journal of Law and Religion. To quote the LLF book, the church is the community that holds on to and follows Christ, holding on to his teaching and living by it. Each generation receives that teaching from previous generations and passes it on to the next. Through those words, we are presented with the derivations, practice and continuity of tradition. Jonathan Baker, that continuity is through scripture, the creeds, the liturgies, but what do you say to those who see that as an over-reliance on 
the arcane and think that we need a more flexible, compassionate, street-level interpretation. So I think I'd want to begin by saying something there about tradition with a, with a capital T. I think the idea of handing on is absolutely at the heart of how the church renews itself and how apostolic teaching is made real in every generation. It's a deeply scriptural idea. St. Paul talks about handing on what he has received with reference, for example, to the Eucharist. Does that mean that there is absolutely no more to be said? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say that for a minute because if you think of the image of the growth of a plant from the seed, Christian doctrine, Christian teaching can develop, it can build on that primitive, that apostolic deposit, but it has to build on it, it has to develop from it in a way that's authentic. So the great name one would reach for as the expositor of that teaching would be, would be Newman, John Henry Newman, who writes at great length and depth about the development of doctrine. And of course, Newman talked about needing, about the church needing to have a poetic imagining of, of the Bible. LLF has, has come about because we've perhaps reached a theological roadblock of disagreement. For you, how does the 4th century Nicene Creed call to be one holy Catholic and apostolic church work practically in an atmosphere of modern cross-examination of sexuality and identity? I suppose one of the great um, insights of 20th century ecclesiology, particularly as worked out in the context of, of trying to think ecumenically, is to understand that unity is not a binary thing. It's not just black and white. We have a deep unity in Christ by virtue of our baptism, and yet that unity is incomplete, unfulfilled, unrealized. So we are, not all Christians are united around one uh, Eucharistic table. So one of the discernments that we're engaged in is of course around this issue of the limits of diversity. When is unity seemingly irretrievably called into question by divergence in practice, divergence in doctrine, uh, divergence in teaching? Can some divergence in practice be accommodated more easily than divergence in formal teaching and doctrine. That's one of the questions I think we've come up against a number of times as we've uh, pursued this work. Julian Rivers. I do wonder, Stuart, if, if your, um, your question presupposed uh, uh, an understanding of unity which was, was need, need some readjustment. I think that's what Jonathan's been getting at here. And particularly when it comes to ethics, what do we mean by unity in the realm of Christian ethics, particularly? One of the things we'd want to say straight away, isn't it, is that our unity in Christ is a unity in sinfulness, in fallibility, in brokenness, in ignorance, uh, that we are saved by grace and we come knowing that we are mistaken, knowing that we are sinful, knowing that we make mistakes, knowing that we haven't understood everything. And in a sense, that kind of takes some of the pressure off. We don't have to agree an absolutely common, unified, total Christian ethic, because that's not our starting point, and it's not where our unity comes from. Andrew Goddard. I think in the um, LLF process, one of the things that's important is that although we are very much doing this work um, as and primarily for the Church of England, 
the Church of England sees itself only as part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And we need, as we do our work, to be listening to that wider church. And that's in a variety of different forms. It's other Anglicans around the world who we have particular bonds with through the Anglican Communion. It's the whole church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox churches, the other Protestant churches. There's a range of different ways in which uh, we need to be listening and not just focusing on us and those who are current day members of the Church of England. Isabel, coming from a European background, how was it for you then to join the Church of England with this long period of tradition and have to accommodate perhaps a certain way of scriptural thinking and practice? I came to the Church of England very slowly. Um, I, I mean, I don't come from a religious background in France and I discovered the Church of England over the years and I grew into it, mostly actually through the discovery of liturgy. And for me, discovering liturgy and the power of inherited words and forms of worships that haven't just popped in your head right now, but that have stood the test of time, that have been prayed over and prayed by many people, for me, was one of the things that made me fall in love with the Church of England, as it were, at a difficult time when we were struggling with uh, miscarriages. And we were able to rest into that liturgy, to rest into the tradition. So my first real kind of deep experience was that feeling of being held. And that prompted me to then discover more and, and gradually to find a space at an Anglican. Former Archbishop of Cape Town, Desmond Tutu, a role model in how to approach reconciliation and resolution, counsels that differences are not intended to separate, to alienate. We are different precisely in order to realise our need for one another. Andrew Goddard, I know in your LLF work you've looked at the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 15, as an early example of dispute solved by debate and decision-making. Can you just explain the backdrop to that and how it's relevant to perhaps those LGBTI plus church members who feel excluded? The story of the early church uh, in Acts, particularly Acts chapter 10 to 15, but what it is talking about is about how the early church in its first years was obviously primarily a Jewish group of people, and there were more and more Gentiles, those who were not Jews, who were becoming followers of Jesus and receiving the Spirit, and the Apostle Paul was particularly involved in mission to them. And the question really became about how does that relate to what we have inherited from our Jewish tradition and particular practices uh, like circumcision and food laws. And there were different views amongst the early Christians as to what really should be expected or required of those who were non-Jews. And so the stories that we see in the Book of Acts have been turned to by people to see if they can help us with some of our differences. Where there's a lot more debate is whether or not those stories can actually help us on the actual issues we are now disagreeing about. And some people will say, yes, they can, because there we see people being welcomed in who were felt excluded, who the scriptures seemed to speak against the way they were living. Uh, and that is something that many uh, LGBT uh, people will feel um, has been their experience. And others will say, well, actually, when you look at the stories, they were all welcomed and they didn't have to 
be circumcised, but other things were expected of Gentiles, including refraining from idolatry and from sexual immorality. And in that sense, we can appeal to these stories more to support the church's traditional teaching. Throwing it open, um, I'll come to you, Jonathan. Do you feel comfortable with the way the debate has gone, especially over sexuality and marriage and identity? The debate has been has been going on in, in, in various forms and in various contexts for a long time, almost in a sense, I think, sort of on each occasion, sort of tiptoeing up to a really difficult or, or perhaps even divisive point and then walking away again. And of course, once you've done that, as we've discovered perhaps with other um, complicated issues such as the ordination of women, particularly to the episcopate, once you've been in a room with people, you sort of come to want them to, 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 to belong. It's harder, I think, to, to be content with driving people out or walking away from other people once you've had that depth of exchange. I think I would say, on the other hand, that we are perhaps only just beginning to drill down to some of the uh, big underlying issues. And I think this is where LLF can really help because it's unafraid in its many expressions to dig into some big issues, I think, around you know Christian anthropology, around the doctrine of creation, around what we believe human flourishing to consist in. We can't just do this as a sort of quasi-parliamentary process in which there's a quick vote and we've decided because we're actually finding that there are some really big and beautiful and fascinating and fundamental issues at stake. Isabel, picking up on, on the point that, that Jonathan made there, realistically, you will have found yourself in the room with people who theologically, if not object, don't go along with the idea of women's ordination or even women, mm. women bishops. How have you met in the middle? Well, that's the life of women who are ordained day in and day out, I'm afraid. There's hardly a place in the church where you don't find yourself as a woman who's ordained, um, you know, with people who, who disagree with your very being at times. Um, in LLF itself, it hasn't been an issue, I have to say. People have always been very polite, which isn't always the case, sadly. Isn't that a bit Anglican, though, to be polite? I wish it was everywhere, but my experience <laughs> is that it isn't. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but I think it is, it is difficult, partly because just like with the question of sexuality, actually, when you're debating those questions, you're not debating things that affect you personally in the same way. And, and that makes it at times, I think, quite hard to have the conversations we need to have because of the the backstage stuff that's happening kind of inside ourselves. At the same time, I am really pleased that I'm part of a church that has chosen to have everybody keeping walking together. And, and I think, isn't, isn't that just true of our day-to-day sort of -day church experience as well? That you know, we, we probably all go to churches which are led by or have people within them with whom we disagree. But we I mean, typically we will go to a church where we perhaps find a higher level of agreement. But there are always those problems of disagreement. And somehow you, you find a place for that and you celebrate what you have in common and you get on with the task of living faithfully for Christ. And you're conscious mm -hmm. that, that it's not easy, that there are these difficulties. And I think within the Church of England, that 
experience is just written out really, really big and really large uh, because it's it's so broad and so diverse. And yet that isn't that part of Christian maturity and discipleship as well? I think that's true, but only to a degree. There's lots of things I disagree with with other people. There is something different about the very fact that I can walk in a room in a dog collar and have people spit at me or shout at me or turn away and refuse to even acknowledge that I exist um, because I'm going to celebrate. So there's something about what's visible, I think, that makes a difference and something that's about your core identity and something you just can't even change about yourself even if you wanted to. Jonathan, how do you react when you hear such stories of women priests, women deacons, receiving such abuse? I think it's really shocking and shameful behaviour. Where those bad behaviours have occurred, I would want to say very clearly that you know those of us who are bishops, who would take a uh, that traditional view around the ordination of women, we would all want to say that sort of behaviour is utterly unacceptable. And I would hope that episodes like that are getting fewer as time goes on. I would hope that very much. I think that I've experienced wonderful friendship from people who come from the same um, perspective as you do, Jonathan. So I totally recognise that. Um, But I'd also want to say something more specifically to LLF, that I think some of the works that we've done around the pastoral guidelines are about enabling people to recognize the difference between a legitimate difference of opinion and plain bad behavior. Um, And I think we've worked very hard on that as part of LLF. And there's part of me that thinks I wish we'd done the same thing on gender. Is there an element in any work like this through that corporate discernment that creeps in that you start to listen too closely to the voices of tradition and that the the excluded the other as Isabel has intimated become case studies I think it's a really tricky question how we appropriate tradition and the extent to which we're guided by it and and I guess whenever we read contributions of Christians from the past we experience both I think incredible familiarity. You you can read a a writer from the 13th century or you can read someone from the 5th century and it can come over as as fresh and real, scriptural and Christian. It it, it can come over as, as somebody with whom you have a lot in common and yet you can also read something and, and it's it's totally strange. It's another world. It's weird. And and so I think as we engage with the past, we're we're caught between this mix of the familiarity and the strange. That's a helpful reminder that the present around us can also be perceived as as very familiar, something obviously true, something right and normal and natural, but also as as very strange. It's about how we keep that balance in place and we have to cultivate that I think ability to move back and forth between the past and the present that's how we appropriate tradition not by being locked in it or stuck in it so that we exclude others or the other but that we cultivate a sort of well dare one say a sort of timelessness an ability to move back and forth between the past and the present 
Andrew Goddard. I was thinking through your comment, to be honest, about, um, I think you said something like listening too carefully or too closely to the past or something like that. And to be blunt, I don't think that's a real danger in the church. Often we don't listen at all or we listen very sort of simply and dip in to find the bits of the past that we can raid for what we want to say now. And in LLF we've also looked at things to do with the church wrestling with polygamy or with contraception. Questions that have closer connections with what we are discussing today and learning how through that debate and discussion new consent arrived. We might say divorce and remarriage is another example. I think by listening carefully to those things rather than just saying, well we listen to God speaking to us now and that's all past and society has moved on so we don't need to learn from it or just saying well the church always said soundbite of what the church said and now we say the same again no we need to listen carefully and closely to those and that's quite a hard task to do but it can be a very profitable one. Jonathan Baker. One of the things that we have really begun to dig into through this process is that those who would seek for revision, reform, development in the church's practice, whichever word you want to choose, to welcome and authorise the marriage of two persons of the same sex. That's not just around marriage discipline, it's not just around how we sort of regulate the institution of marriage, it's actually for the first time bringing into the discussion who may marry, who are, who, who, whom can the parties to marriage be in that fundamental way? For many people, that will raise issues of our understanding of creation, our understanding of what it means to believe that you know, God has created us male and female, and so on and so forth. And there are going to be a range of views around that, of course. It's perhaps an issue which is not just the sort of question of these times, but something which opens up major strands of Christian thinking and back, you know, Judeo-Christian tradition in a way that some of these other controversies you'd have to work quite hard to say well that's really quite as fundamental now every generation thinks its own rows are fundamental I, I, I get that but I think there might be a consensus even amongst people who take a different view that this is perhaps a different order of question from some of those other questions that have been disputed in the past. Julian Rivers. I, I love G.K. Chesterton's famous quotation that uh, tradition is the living faith of the dead and traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And, and there's a sense in which what we want to do is have a conversation with fellow brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. It's just that most of them are no longer alive. Uh, and we're widening that that group with whom we have the conversation. And like all good conversations, that requires us to listen really carefully. The very reverend Dr. David Ison, the current dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, poses a pertinent question in an essay in the book Journeys in Grace and Truth, Revisiting Scripture and Sexuality. Considering the question of inherited interpretation of scripture, he asks, how far is the Holy Spirit speaking to the church through social change and how far is the church in hock to the spirit of the age? Isabel Hamley, Christ has entrusted the gospel to the church as the LLF book states, but his disciples and followers heard the Old Testament in new ways. Is there a new way of hearing and interrogating those old truths? 
interrogating all truth and working out how to lift them out well in the present is always has always been the task of the people of God, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. The book of Deuteronomy, for instance, is a working out how we're going to live out faith in the new land for the new generation. I mean, just one generation is enough to move you to a place of having to face social change. Now, a more fundamental rethinking happened at the time of the New Testament with the new church, the early church. I think we have to be careful not to make too many easy parallels between that and our situation now. As I think Andrew pointed out earlier, there was a moment that was very defining for Christianity at the time that Jesus came and people trying to reinterpret everything in the light of Christ. I think that's a different type of reinterpreting the past than what we're trying to do now in response to social change. Uh, But having said that, social change is there. If God has created the world and we discover some things about the world that are true, and this is God's world, then what does that tell us about God? What does that tell us about ourselves? Do we need to rethink some of the way we've understood the world? I think that's, that's part of being human and made in the image of God, is to learn more and more about the world. The final pages of the chapter that we're discussing mention the contribution of queer hermeneutics and the effect that that's had on re-evaluating assumed biblical texts. Do you think the LLF process will open the way to perhaps the consideration of blessing and acceptance of same-sex relationships and marriages? It would be a mistake, again, to think that there's a kind of binary here. Um, I think there will be faithful members of the Church, the Church of England, who will find themselves persuaded by or open to you know, a number of different ways forward. How that does come to take the form of a synod debate, I'm glad that's not my task to to, to arrange that. But I think what LLF has done is it's, or what what it is doing, is giving people tools to think really deeply about what do we mean by marriage, what do we mean by relationship. One of the fruits of LLF, I hope, will be that there is a great deal that we can all affirm together about human flourishing, about what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God, who is relationship, who is love, what we can affirm together about the the character and goods of marriage before we get on to discussing who may, may or may not marry whom. Julian Rivers. I mean, I think the interesting question is, where will we be in 100 years' time? What will survive and prove itself to be a genuine point of transition and learning within the Christian church, and what will prove to be a merely passing interest and one which... Uh, which is of the spirit of the age. We've used that phrase before. But one of the things uh, that I've certainly hoped, and, and I think I've experienced for myself, is that to some extent positions and views can change. Yes, we could hope for that. But also that we understand why we believe what we believe better, that we, we we have a better sense of what we think matters and why it matters. We have a deeper understanding um, of, of God, of human beings, of sexuality, of marriage, of all these issues, so that even as we, we, we come out of the process, we're thinking, you know, this hasn't produced, as it were, an answer, uh, but, but what it has done is it's helped me grow. Andrew Goddard. I hope that living in love and faith will help us to understand each other better, and in doing that, to understand how significant these differences are and what 
the significance means for how we live well together. Uh, what that will mean in practice, the church has, you know, we've used it for some of the other issues we've mentioned, such as women's ordination. We have a process by which the church may come to new understandings and new liturgies and new practices, and it requires a significant amount of consensus over something new um, in terms of the votes in synod and whether we are there yet for any developments in relation to providing services um, to recognise and celebrate same-sex unions. We have general synod elections coming up. That synod will have to decide those sorts of issues. Um, and then if we do, uh, we have to decide what that means for those in the church who, who can't accept that development at this time as being authentic and, and genuine. The 2017 statistics for marriage in England and Wales, as published by the Office for National Statistics in 2020, reported the overall marriage rate continuing to decline, with the church losing ever more ground to civil ceremonies. Of the just over 240,000 marriages, 97% were between opposite-sex couples, with 3% between same-sex couples. Julian Rivers in a speech to the Family Educational Trust in 2017, you posed the strictly legal question, does English law need marriage, with, as you pointed out, the legal state of marriage being increasingly contested morally? In that situation, where does that leave the Church of England in trying to uphold the sanctity of marriage? The legal distinctiveness of marriage has, has fallen away. It's become less and less uh, relevant as the law has had to cope with social change. It's had to cope with cohabitation. It's had to cope with same-sex partnership. And, and in that sense, being married doesn't have the same significance in law that it used to have. It's possible to imagine a legal context in which being married has no legal significance whatsoever. Uh, what would have significance is the fact that you are in a stable domestic partnership with one or more other people, uh, the fact that you have care of children, that you have parental responsibility, something like that. So, you know, if we were living in a world in which there was no legal, civil legal con concept of marriage, uh, and marriage then would become a purely social phenomenon, and it would be a space within which the church perhaps felt freer to be distinctive, to make up its own mind, and to call marriage what it thought marriage was. And particularly how we relate, actually, what are several different views of what marriage is, held by different parts of society, and whether any one of them needs to dominate and take over everything. I'm not sure that it does. I think it's entirely possible for Christians to have a particular understanding of what marriage is, for other religions to have slightly different understandings, for people who have no religion to have another one, and, and for other people to say that their relationship is not a marriage when we think it might be and others to say their relationship is a marriage and we think it isn't. Another way of putting that point is that historically speaking periods of time in which everyone agrees what marriage is seem to be quite rare. It's quite unusual. But from a priestly perspective the sanctity of marriage how do you how do you communicate that to people who want to get married within the Church of England but have no, perhaps, faith commitment with the Church. They, they, they want the Church, mm. and I'm, hopefully uh, I'm, I'm not being dismissive here, but they, they want the theatre of the Church. 
I think people come to the church because there is something there that they can feel, but they can't necessarily express it. So I'm not sure I would say it's the theatre of the church. I always give people the benefit of the doubt. So I would meet people and I would just ask them. So that's what I used to do when I met a wedding couple. I said, "Okay, you know, why church? You know, what is it about it? And we'd work on that together. And I think there is something about the sense of connecting to tradition that a lot of couples actually mention. There's something about the fact that in our context, often the wedding couples that I met were getting married because they wanted to start a family. So it was no longer we're getting married to mark the beginning of our life together. We're getting married because we're becoming a family unit. And for them, becoming a family unit was then connecting with, we want our children baptized here, we want to give our children a kind of a foundation for something. And often they couldn't quite explain what that was. But, but I think it was connected to that sense of, we want to have children, we want to bring them up a certain way, we want to be part of a community, we want to know that we have roots somewhere. <laughs> Julian? The New Testament interprets the Old Testament texts as pointing to Jesus as the fulfilment of the Old Testament law. But you'll be aware of the paradox. Jesus was accused by the law preservers, particularly the Pharisees, of breaking the Old Testament biblical laws. The example of Jesus's handling of the law is, is wonderful, isn't it? Because Jesus both completely revolutionises the law and yet at the same time wants to show us that what he's saying somehow expresses the spirit of the law. And I think that that sets the example for what we're looking for. What we're looking for is, is not to preserve the detail of the past, but to try to understand what the underlying spirit or lo logic is, what the rationale is, what matters, what the values are, and then re-express those for our own time. And, and in that sense, I think, this is really no different from what from what Jesus was doing in his ministry, as far as we can tell. The opposition from the Pharisees came from those who were stuck within a particular reading of the past, if you like, a literal fixed one, which uh, didn't see that possibility as open. But I think here the importance of, of, of liturgy as well is, is, is key. I think when my wife and I prepare people, as well as listening, as Isabel was saying, as to why they are coming, we will take them through the liturgy uh, through which they will marry. And it is amazing how those who maybe don't have much connection with the church find in the words of the liturgy, which includes obviously often quotations or allusions of the scriptures and the, and the church's teaching of marriage, is something that actually excites them as articulating what it is they believe they are doing when they marry. And it, and it gives them language, it gives them a way of understanding, a way of life that they're entering, that, that maybe they, they haven't had put to them in, in, in quite as clear and simple and compact a way before. And that then raises the question as we look at, you know, what would it mean were the church to decide it was right to offer something like that to same-sex couples? You know, what would that look like? How would it be faithful to what we have expressed in our liturgies and laws in the past? How would it be faithful to the scriptures? Um, and is there a way of doing that or is there, is, is there not? And if there is not, what then are the ways in which we can nevertheless show the love and the welcome of Christ uh, to those whose relationships we cannot agree upon a language about how we can celebrate them liturgically? Jonathan, Andrew poses some very 
key questions there any response uh, i absolutely want to support everything andrew's just said i think i think he's, he's he's expressed something very important there and i i was particularly um struck by that use of the little phrase from the marriage right or one of the marriage services way of life there was an interesting discussion i was listening to the other day about people who had had to face a radically different wedding day because of covid restrictions and a bride-to-be said um you know in a way that was simple but really rather you know rather beautiful well it's not just about the wedding is it it's about the marriage and i think one of the things which it's really important for the church to be doing at, at parish level and resourced and supported by everything that the, that the that the national church perhaps can throw into this is to help couples to understand that this is a way of life they are entering into and then to support them in that life after the wedding day and actually how are we accompanying people through this way of life uh, which will go on because of longevity you know twice as long three times as long as when a lot of our assumptions about marriage were being formed just to make the point again about about uh, tradition capital t where i began as being something that you know it is is not a body of teaching long ago that we're getting further and further away from with the passing of time but something that is lived and fresh in every generation it's a it's the living stream of of tradition in the preface to the declaration of assent which the bishop puts to a minister a priest or deacon when they are taking up a new appointment in the church of england the minister is is enjoined to um, proclaim afresh to proclaim afresh the faith which the church has received in the context of today we all understand that the that the christian faith must be proposed to each new generation must be proclaimed afresh but it is the faith which must be proclaimed afresh and again that brings us back to authentic or or inauthentic development what is it that we're seeking to propose as the as the body of christian teaching today thank you very much for joining us in this podcast and my thanks to jonathan baker andrew goddard isabel hamley and Julian Rivers. If you fancy rating or reviewing this podcast, then please do. Further resources are available at churchofengland.org forward slash LLF. Goodbye and thank you for listening.